Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I'm here with my five-year-old in the background. And today on the show, we have got uh, one of our favorite people. It's Miss Jackie Rowe Fields, recurring guest. You've heard her on other episodes before, uh, but we wanted Miss Jackie to talk today um, in our series, what we're calling We're All Human. Um, we wanted to look at uh, a complex issue of generational trauma. Um, and so I'll say a, a disclaimer first off, um, if you have been following any kind of uh, national news, international news at the time of this podcast airing, um, it has been an absolutely brutal week for um, us in the city of Memphis. And so you will hear it definitely in a more somber tone um, in us in the beginning as we're talking Um just because uh, we were fresh off of two pretty horrific tragedies that have kind of rocked our city. Um, and I just shared that because it might sound like it's an extra somber beginning, but also because um, it, it pertains directly to our conversation um, with Miss Jackie today. And so uh, without any further ado, let's get to her now. Here she is, Miss Jackie Rowe Fields. <laughs> Well, we, as I said in the open, uh, we're here with Jackie Rowe Fields and Becca McKay today. And um, just to give some prefacing before we start into this conversation today, um, at mo- many of you know this, that um, Empowered to Connect is headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. And um, at the time that we're recording this, um, we have been in the middle of one of the worst weeks that we can all remember um, for our city. And so um, if you have followed news. We're not going to roll through the whole series of events, but Eliza Fletcher was um, kidnapped and murdered earlier in this week. And then um, last night, there was a man that went on a um, Facebook live shooting spree around our city. And as of now, four people are dead from that. There's a few still in the hospital. And it's just, it's one of those, it's, it's a moment and it reminds me of, you know, uh, different size tragedies, but it reminds me of waking up after 9-11 and thinking, what, what, happened like what do I what am I supposed to do now like in full disclosure like I so I drove home a few minutes ago to change clothes and and get ready for a a bigger meeting where I need to be dressed like a grown-up and so I came back over and as I'm driving back to the office I'm driving through one of the intersections where a young lady was murdered last night and you wouldn't be able to tell from looking around that happened life is sort of moving on but all of us feel a little bit stuck today and so if you hear an extra somber tone or kind of extra bit of anger or fire in our voices as we talk about this topic today, it's because um, we are all uh, mad, um, feeling it, we're sad, um, heartbroken, you name it. And so um, lots of layers to where we're at today. Um, but this topic that we had picked to talk about today feels like it was, um, and I'll just use the word providential, that, that this was what we're going to talk about today with who we're going to talk about. Um, Becca and Jackie and I um, worked together years and years ago in a school setting um, in Memphis in um, one, one of the tougher neighborhoods in the city for lack of a better explanation. We don't have to go through all of our terms and all that, but like um, lot, we had lots of days of coming back into the school feeling like this or something had happened in the neighborhood the night before um, or something had happened midday and when we walked back in and just felt heavy and, and didn't know how to process and so we knew um, in talking about this topic today we wanted to talk with Jackie so Jackie um, thank you for being here with us today and um, maybe we need to start by acknowledging you and I have a little bit of a disease Jackie 
that in in extremely hard moments we ha- we have inappropriate laughter disease where we um, tend to cope in some form or fashion by making jokes that that some people might not feel fit the moment. Um, and so we are going to refrain from that today. You and I are um, best we can. <laughs> or we can just explain how it's helpful to the healing process. You know, we can we can roll we can roll with it a little bit. A little bit. Yes. So that's yes. a long, it's a long introduction. Um, I didn't even say the topic we're talking about today, but we're, we're talking about generational trauma. And um, so Jackie, you know, for us, when we look at what happened today or uh, what happened this week, um, mm-hmm. two pretty specific situations where I think those of us with, with a mind to see would look straight at generational trauma as one of the factors in these things. So why don't we start there? Would you just sort of walk us through the idea of generational trauma and then we'll we'll go from there. Well, JD, hello everyone. Hi Becca. <laughs> good to see you. So good to see you. And JD, you're right. After such a tough few days, this is delightful to see um, the faces of friends that I hold so dear. Um, JD, I would like to chime in on something you said about 9-11 that literally last night I said to myself, this is what the city must have felt like after MLK was assassinated. Mm. And, um, you know, I think your, your term of heaviness is the right one, right? We just, you, you feel a heaviness to, um, the community that I have never experienced before, but I thought this this must be what it was like after the assassination yeah, of that's... Dr. King. And so that in and of itself talks about generational trauma, right? Trauma that's passed down from age to age to age and mm-hmm. manifests itself in a variety of ways. But sometimes people can put their finger on it and name it. And sometimes we are not able to name it as generational trauma. Yeah. I'm thinking like a few years from now, I'm thinking about um, one of the one of the murders this week that happened was a runner. Mm-hmm. And I've seen already circulated probably like 50 or 60 different like tips, basically like how can we avoid that? And I think, you know, while that's, I'm not, we should do what we can to feel safe. Like we should do the things that we can to create felt safety. But I'm also thinking like a few years from now, we're going to have maybe a hypersensitive running community yeah. and it's yeah. going to be, you know, maybe we're not going to trace it back only to this incident. And then I think about um, my brother and sister-in-law were in a pretty terrible tornado when they were in college. It destroyed the whole campus. It leveled the whole campus. Mm. And I came to the same college four years later. So when I came, nobody who had been through the tornado was still there. But the way they approached tornado drills at that university was so intense. I mean, it was, I came from a place where there wasn't tornadoes. So I, my only introduction to tornadoes was like, we have steel reinforced bathrooms and we will go in when the sirens start. And if they don't stop for six hours, we're in the bathroom for six hours. Mm -hmm. Like it was not the culture now, you know, here where we live, there's times when people will kind of be out in the front porch looking or whatever, but the university had some collective trauma and it got passed down by the staff members who were there, right? Because the students had all graduated. They were gone. They had moved on. Yeah. But now I'm super panicky about tornadoes. And it's like, yes, it was more connected to me maybe because of my brother, but I wasn't there. I was not in the situation, mm-hmm. but I internalized that 
based on my experience there. So I think when I think about generational trauma, I'm thinking about what led up to the two events that happened this week. I'm thinking ahead of like what it's going to look like in the future. Um, and there's just a lot to unpack with this idea mm-hmm. of the the idea that we can pass on trauma to other people. Um, yeah, either by either by being violent and by creating trauma or by the way that we respond to, to the trauma that we've experienced. Because mm-hmm. it certainly seeps into, you know, the systems and the structures that govern the way we live. Like you're talking about your your campus's tornado response, but you made me think about when I was in high school, I was in a tornado. Mm-hmm. And that was a very traumatic experience for me and my siblings. My mom was at work and I'm the oldest. And so I was responsible for us. And so now mm-hmm. I have a five-year-old grandson. And if the weather looks like it could be tornadic, he already knows the drill, right? Because I have passed down my own very traumatic tornado experience to him. Now, my husband, he's out looking in the back and standing, you know, yeah. he's like, well, look up there. Look up there. And I'm like, I don't, even, I don't even think it's that bad out there. Yeah. <laughs> what just flew by? And I'm like, assume the position, you know? So. Yeah, but well, and you, yeah, we may not even mean, know the source of it, Becca. Like you said, yeah. we you know the history, but other students there may not even know that history, right? Which I think leads straight back into our starting place here, right? We think about the things that happened this week, and to the to the to those of us who are just walking into the discussion blind right now and just hearing this the first time, you're like. You're talking about two like violent events. Like, what are you talking about? Generational. It wasn't a father son duo that committed this. Like, what are you talking about? Generational trauma. And so you started to touch on it just now with the systems and and different cultural components that can come with that. And so why don't we why don't we dive into that that faction of this? Because this, this is this is the same. It's different language, different events, different circumstances. But this idea transcends geographical location and cultures and history. Right. Mm-hmm. And biology, JD, because some would say that trauma is passed on to your offspring through DNA. Um, so there's a biological component to it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when we look at you know these situations, particularly, why would we draw those associations in the, the situations we led with talking about this week in Memphis? I think that's an important question. I'm, I, I keep coming back to, I think, the question of generational trauma. I think we can repeat, um, what's, the, what's the right word? We can repeat violence. We can, we can repeat perpetrating trauma on someone else. That can be generational. I think we can repeat unhelpful, hypervigilant, hyper-scared victim responses. And I think we have an opportunity to create good patterns, like good, healthy mm. patterns, um, and I think, I know it's silly to like mention, but we started by saying we sometimes laugh about inappropriate things, but I think creating communities of healing is being somebody who can stare something really difficult in the face, choose to keep walking forward, mm. choose to keep showing up for each other, make it light whenever we can. You know what I mean? I think it's it's the the super complicated thing to untangle. So I wonder, Jackie Rowe, talk about people who have experienced trauma and then go on to create trauma for other people. I mean, you've done so much work for your whole lifetime. You've seen that in a lot of different spaces. Like what Mm -hmm. kinds of things can we learn from that? 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, you all know that I've worked in education my entire life, but I've worked at, with different age groups from pre-K all the way through college. Mm-hmm. And so what's so interesting about it to me is that no matter the age group, trauma shows up in some similar ways. Mm-hmm. And, and and it may be violent. It may be angry. It may be the response And Becca, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking about that myself, that we often think about trauma as the perpetration and how it looks, how it looks when someone's being violent or perpetrating that. But we don't often think about trauma is also a learned response to a situation or to something. Uh, And we rarely ever talk about trauma uh, in terms of providing a healing space. You know, how how does a community heal from trauma, if we could figure that piece out, then we may be able to intercept that generational trauma that keeps being passed down. But we don't focus on that on that very often. But it shows up no matter how old you are, where you live, ethnic background, nationality, uh, a trauma that's passed on from generation to generation bubbles up over and over and over again. And I'm rambling now, Becca, and I don't remember your question because I'm thinking about a book that I read. Um, matter of fact, I have it here because I wanted to be sure to share it. Um, have you have you guys ever read this? My Grandmother's Hands? No. I've heard of it, but I have not read it yet. Oh, put this on your reading list, okay? So this book is so germane to, to our topic today um, because this book talks about what this, this author saw their grandmother uh, experience in life, which, again, we don't realize the source. So have you heard the story about the ham? About why did, the, why did the wife come analogy. out? Tell it again. So, yeah, so it. there's this analogy about this young couple. They're newlyweds. They get married. It's their first big Thanksgiving dinner. And the bride's so excited. She's going to cook a family ham. And so she gets the ham all cleaned and prepped. And she slices off the end. And the husband says, why do you slice off the end of the ham? And she thought, you know what? I don't know. I, I, I'm going to call my mom and ask. So she called mom. And she says, Mom, I'm getting ready for dinner. I'm cooking Thanksgiving dinner. Why do we slice slice off the end of the ham? And the grandmother says, I mean, the mother says, I don't know. My mother's just always done that. So she she calls her mother and she says, Mom, I've got Becca, the new bride on the phone, who wants to know, why do we slice off the end of the ham? And the grandmother says, we're talking three generations of women now, grandmother, mother, and the daughter. Why do we slice off the end of the ham? And the grandmother says, because I didn't have a pan big enough. So we, that's the, J.D., you've never heard that story, J.D.? No, i never heard that. But it's a great illustration of how we yes. have a response that travels from generation to generation, and we don't even know the source. The cause was the ham, the pan was too small, and so she sliced it off as a response, as a solution because a lot of our coping mechanisms is just mm. about survival, right? Grandmother sliced off the end of the ham for survival purposes. Her daughter watched her do that. That daughter watched her do that. And now that we've healed that issue, her children won't slice off the end of the ham because there won't be a need to. But that was passed down for generation to generation. Yeah. 
What do this you book think? is great, you guys. It, it kind of captures that talk story. Talk about that a little bit. Tell a little, tell a little teaser of it for people who haven't read it because I haven't so, read it. So the title is My Grandmother's Hand. It's racialized trauma and the pathway to mending our hearts and bodies. And the important part of it is the pathway to mending. Mm-hmm. And this talks about racialized trauma because I think it is important to talk about how trauma looks in different ethnic groups because, yeah. you know, different ethnic groups have experienced different kinds of trauma and they um, they have different coping mechanisms for dealing with it. But it's universal in the aspect that trauma happens everywhere. Trauma mm-hmm. is no respecter of persons, right? Mm-hmm. It is no respecter of persons. And so what's really, what I think is really groovy about this is it talks about, number one, how trauma really does affect you physically. I think that's another aspect that we yeah. don't talk often about. And then it gives some notion that, yes, we have been trauma traumatized, but there's hope. There's hope for healing. Um, And we don't often get to the hope for healing part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean, thinking you touched on just racial trauma and the the cycles that that brings up and and specifically here in the U S and I know that we've talked about it with Tom and Don Jordy before in South Africa, like these, whether you want to zoom all the way back to the colonialism type stuff and imperialism and, and conquering and all that, or we want to, you know, fast forward, a little bit to slavery or we want to fast forward a little bit. I mean, we can, we can look and, and find a pretty intense, at least in, in the U S specifically, a really intense kind of segmented history where uh, people of different ethnic backgrounds were pitted against each other. And then their kids were pitted against each other and their kids were pitted against each other. And so I think that's where I start to come to in this conversation, because one of the most difficult dynamics that can exist with that, because we hear about Hatfields and McCoys, and that's a similar type of passed down hate, so to speak. But this situation we're talking about also involved class and then that systemic oppression of one group of people over another group of people because of power dynamics. And so um, it, that's when we start to get into conversations that you, you get extremely complex looking at it now and trying to then figure out well, what are we supposed to do now? And so Jackie, I wonder if you have any thoughts along those lines, like of uh, in terms of like Becca said this morning, we were talking about this and, and, and we talked about uh you know, the need for juvenile justice systems that are well-informed. One, one of the um, people this week that committed one of the crimes, but rap sheet started at 11 years old and was filled all the way through going to jail at 16 um, and jail for 20 years, gets out and immediately picks right back up where they left off. And so there's just this discussion of like, well, is this person just a monster or what would have helped along those ways? And you you begin to look back at, well, the system failed him. And Becca said, yeah, but we can do all the systems work we want if the families are not um, are not reached, if the families are not equipped, prepared, if the families are not um, holding that, then the whole thing falls apart in our society. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like Becca's talking from some personal work experience where she's tried to address all the wraparounds, but at the end of the day, if the family is in an unhealthy state and that's family, however you define family, because, um, you know, we've got to, we've got to accept that family looks a lot broader and more diverse than what we traditionally have, have wanted to define it. Um, 
We can do all the systems work in the world, but I think it is important to do the systems work. It's not right. either or, it's That's and, right. you know, it's this and that. All these things have to happen simultaneously. I was thinking about the young man also last night, and I was thinking about the fact that in the elementary school, I could have pointed him out. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't know him, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. I know students like yes. I imagine he was like when he was in elementary school. <clears throat> and there there are not um, the systems in place to support students uh, and families in that way. And and part of that is you all literally. It's honestly about how we define family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are so many things put in place that are supposed to be there to be protective, but are actually restrictive. Mm. Um, I think about all those grandmothers that I had the opportunity to work with who didn't have legal say because they weren't the legal guardian, you know, but they were the primary caregiver. Right. They yeah. were the the person of influence. They were the matriarch of the family, but legally... Uh, they didn't have, you know, the right to make decisions that would have worked on behalf of those of those yeah. children. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's family as an ecosystem. And that's how I think about it. Think about it as an ecosystem. And when one part of the ecosystem isn't working well, then none of the ecosystem can function well. Mm. You know, if you if you think about your gut, I'm all into gut health right now, you guys. Uh-huh. <laughs> if any part of your gut health system isn't working well, it throws off your entire ecosystem, your entire body as an ecosystem. So I can't just work on getting, you know, strong arms and I have weak legs. Right. That's right. We've, we've got to think about this and that it's not either or. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like anytime that there's something that makes the national news, you just immediately get a swarm of one sentence, three sentence. Well, if only they, they did blank, then this wouldn't happen. And I have, I've been processing last night, even like, why does that make me so mad? Um, and I think it is, you know, I'm a social worker. And I think a lot of times people say, where was the mental health care? Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, but I've, but I've been the social worker for the fifth grader. And I have done, and I've sat next to someone like Jackie Rowfields as the community engagement coordinator, and we've provided everything that we could. And so, and that's so important. I love that you said that, Jackie Row. It's both and. That kid needed that. And they needed the football coach who took an interest in them. And they needed the grandmother who could step in. And they needed the uncle who could take them to get their haircut on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. And they needed, they just needed like, like the whole, the whole ecosystem. And so I'm glad you said that because I hope I don't know, Jackie Rowe, we, we, when we come to this podcast, right, we have we have some big picture goals in mind and we want people to walk away feeling encouraged. Like we want them to know, here's something practical I can do. And so I don't want to make it sound discouraging, but at the same time, I want people to understand the complexity. Mm-hmm. There's no quick fixes when it comes That's to right. personal trauma and there's for sure no quick fixes when it comes to generational trauma. So I like, if you are the school social worker, keep going. If you are the juvenile justice right. worker, keep going. If you're the grandmother, keep going. Like, I think it's, we've all got to keep going. And we can't look at someone's life and go, well, if only they had 
a great school social worker when they were 11, mm-hmm. this would have never happened. Or you can't say, well, obviously the juvenile justice system did nothing for that kid. We don't know that. We don't know what pieces of that person's story came into play. We don't know. And I think we can hold the complexity of that. I think we can hold how sad it is and hard it is that like sometimes this happens and it's hard to watch. Um, Something we talked about this morning, Jackie Rowe, in our staff meeting was this idea of like, for people who generally feel safe, tragedy and violence can hit super hard. Mm-hmm. And for people who violence and tragedy is part of their like day-to-day life, it can be a little, they can be a little bit more desensitized or numb to it. Mm-hmm. And so I think I would just love to hear, I mean, this may be too big of a question, Jackie Rowe, but like, what do you think that the community can do for each other when we come to these big, tough moments? Like, how can we support mm-hmm. each other? Like what, well, I don't know. What ideas do you have? I will tell you, JD's comment earlier it really hit me like a ton of bricks when he said he drove past the intersection and kind of life was going on like normal. Mm -hmm. And I don't have all the answers, but I will certainly tell you, I wish we could all pause. Mm -hmm. Like, could we have a collective pause? Could we do a community lament? Could we have some time as a group to experience grief to express some sadness? Can we make space where we could do that as a collective? We, we, we don't pause to do that, you know, and we, I work in a school currently and our school was back at school today. And one of the um, incidents was literally a stone's throw Mm -hmm. from our school, like two schools, three schools, there are three schools in the neighborhood and everyone's back at school today. And I'm like, this is, this is not reasonable in my mind, to think that children are going to come back to school and function as if nothing has happened. If nothing else, at school, we need a collective pause to acknowledge that this is heavy and that people may be feeling sad and angry because I've I've experienced, I've done this. I've been sad, I've been angry, um, disbelief. And I think If I had one, if I could wave a wand and wish we could do anything, it would be pause for a moment, a collective pause to take a deep breath, to acknowledge what the community is experiencing. And different people do experience it differently, Becca, because you're right. For me, this was mind blowing. For someone else, they may have been like, yeah, hey, people drive through my neighborhood shooting things up all the time. That's right. Um, But even in that, there's a middle ground. Mm-hmm. Even at both extremes, we can come together somewhere together as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be that would be where I would start. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I have this thought as we try to turn the corner into maybe some like hope giving things or ideas. This is one of them, right? To collectively pause in that moment. Like um, I'll, I'll just share a personal story. And, and I know that my family would not. We've, we've shared this before. Um, that involves both of y'all. I mean, we were... Um, living in the neighborhood where we all worked in the school before. And um, there's one afternoon a shooting broke out in the street and I was uh, kind of stuck in the parking lot and couldn't, couldn't make it through to my house to check on the kids and until the shooting died down. So the shooting dissipates and everybody takes off and I run across the street to check and see if everybody's okay. And, um, and the kids are playing in the living room and my wife's cooking and, um, 
she said, I, I think, and she kind of did motion for a gun. I think I just heard gunshots. And um, sure enough, I, I, you know, checked on her, knew the police were coming. So I was kind of like, and this, this is again, part of this collective trauma. I was like, all right, if you guys are fine. I'm just gonna head on back to work, you know, because that was kind of, it was so common that we just kind of knew, okay, if the police are coming, we'll be fine. We'll take off. And I think this is the first time I told that story where that, that catches me. And I'm like, wow, that, okay, that's, that's interesting. And so I go back to work and she, my wife called me a few minutes later, freaking out because our three-year-old had brought her a bullet and said, mom, what's this? And Elizabeth looks up and there's a hole in the ceiling where a bullet had come right through the living room while all the kids were in there playing and, um, and had hit off the wall and come to rest on the floor. And um, in that moment, I felt so invaded and, and scared and angry and hurt and all those things. But I'll tell you something that has, that has changed and I believe will have changed us generationally is that next day, um, so that rest of that night was kind of chaotic and we all slept you know, kids away from the windows and stuff just because we were just paranoid and just were like, if anything else breaks out tonight, we don't want them near that front bedroom where, where stuff could happen. So we all slept sort of in the back of the house that night. And, um, and so the next day, um, I was sharing with both of you, like, we're, we're just struggling today. I'm mad. Like, I hate this place. I, I can't believe that we're living here. This is so stupid. Like, why are we here? And, um, and just being honest, you know, with you guys. And so after school, um, we canceled afternoon programs and everybody from the, everybody from the school that was part of our school family, so to speak. Um, you two were part of this. Becca took our kids back into the back of the house and our school family came over, surrounded us and just loved on us, prayed for us, encouraged us, just sat and listened to us, cried with us and just held that for a minute. Just gave us space to acknowledge like this is this is scary. We shouldn't be used to this. This shouldn't be normal. This shouldn't be something that we're desensitized to where we can be tough and roll on like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And it has set the precedent for us and for our kids and our family that anytime a friend of ours or someone that we love has a life altering moment or life interrupting moment, we stop what we're doing. We get on the stove and start cooking. We, you know, or we just call and order something. Um, or we, you know, pause, we go to the store, we do what we need to, and we get over and we just are with our people as we need to be with them. And our kids are now seeing that modeled in a way that is completely normative. Like, wait, why are I going to practice tonight? And I, da, da, da. Hey, this happened to so-and-so. Oh no, hang on, let me go make a card for them real quick. And our kids know that like when, when life stops for our people, life stops for us and we are there and we move and y'all did that for us. Like you guys set that precedent for us that we, we didn't have to be alone in that moment. And that was a massive thing for us to know that we were seen by you guys, but also that I could come and share honestly because you were right there with me and you could, you could handle it if I was honest about how bad that moment was. And uh, that was huge for us. And so I can just say from a personal place of just, I know what that's like, I would co-sign that. And maybe I need on the way home, stand in the intersection for a second, not in the intersection, um, by the intersection for a few minutes and and sit and, and reflect and, and think about that. Um, other ideas, Jackie, as we, as we think about, you know, ways that these cycles can be broken, because that is the hopeful part. We do know no one is condemned Mm-hmm. to a certain life because of their past or their family's past. Um, thoughts on like different ways those cycles can get interrupted that we might be able to have small parts in. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story, JD. I do 
remember that vividly. Yeah. Um, but it just hits different today. Um, yeah. um, but, but yeah, thanks for sharing that. And that just comes, that's a good confirmation for me about the power of seeing people and being there for your people. Um, yeah. cause we're, we're big about that. We're yeah. big about that. Yeah. Um, but the other, the other thing comes to my mind, you all is, you know, I believe power is knowledge is powerful mm. and there are academic based research based you know things that we know now books that have been written um research that's been done that we we can apply to trauma uh and we 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 don't do better because we don't know better right but we now have a source of knowledge that we can call upon even just calling it trauma mm-hmm. i'll be honest with you you know a, a not so terribly long ago trauma <laughs> right <laughs> we did not we did not use you know i hear it everywhere now oh you know it's trauma we're traumatized that's you know extra right. we did not even know we didn't have the language for it yeah. so right. just having the language to name it is huge. huge and sometimes it's giving people those kinds of tools that's really really important we're talking about uh, how do we remain hopeful? We remain hopeful by educating and equipping ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we fight back with knowledge on this. Um, I, uh, I'm okay. You know me and my books. I got books over here, y'all. I got oh. books. I got books. I know this is a book that you all use, right? What yeah. happened to you? That's kind of you know a staple. And then we also mentioned earlier um, the body keeps score which is another staple that just gives you the language to be able to process and understand and support other people who are feeling the impact and the effects of trauma. But I will tell you there, I'm going to mention one more book because I love this book so much. And this book, um, two more. So this is how the word is passed. Oh, so good. Clint Smith. It's so good. It's one of my favorite books. And he reads the audio book. So I know there are people who are paper book people. I'll tell you, if you are not, like, I, the audio book is awesome. He, he reads it, and it's so, so good. So what's interesting to me is once you do understand generational trauma or once you see the impact of generational trauma, you're then able to identify it, right? You're able to say, oh, you know what? That's what generational trauma looks like. He doesn't even talk, he doesn't say the word generational trauma in this. Right, right. It does not explicitly say it, but as he's going through the stories and just to hint you guys, he goes to visit several different places and he kind of explores how the the locations impact him. Once you have the language, you'll be able to process that through a filter. It's having the language is huge. So people who are working with folks, think about equipping people with language that they can express themselves. We do this all the time in elementary school. I know you you all do this work. Becca, Becca and I have done this work together for sure. We want young people to have the language to be able to explain yeah. what they're feeling, process verbally what they're feeling. That's that's true for my grandmother. You know, my grandmother didn't have the language. Mm-hmm. And so even reaching back that way and giving her language to ex- for help her express and explain, I think that's huge, huge, huge. Yeah. Um, I'm with you, Becca and JD. I don't want anyone to feel like... It's it's not a place of hope. As a matter of fact, that's if I had a tattoo, it'd be hope. 
somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had a, I'm not gonna have any more children, but if I got a puppy, I think I named my puppy Hope. <laughs> Miss, uh, I have to tell. I gotta tell. Go two, ahead. I gotta say one thing and tell a story. Go um, ahead. I was a young baby intern working with Miss Jackie, and it was a tough year. A lot of things happened to us, um, among us, with us, and we were trying to make it to the end of the school year. And if you're a teacher, you've been there. You might be there today in September. And Miss Jackie wrote Hope on a sticky note taped it to a ruler and it became our hope flag. And I'm not kidding. It was a little, it was, it was the hope stick. And we would literally, whoever was having a bad day, we would put that little flag hope stick like on their, on their desk and it would be passed around the office. And even, I think I found a picture of it the other day in our group text, Miss Jackie and I have with some other people that we used to work with. When we're having a hard day, we do like remember the hope stick. And the point of the Mm -hmm. hope stick is we got to hold on to hope. We just have to. It's not easy. It's sometimes feels impossible. And so when I can't, Jackie Rowe holds it for me. When she yeah. can't, I hold it for yeah. her. Like you have to have those people that that's will right. remind you of hold on to hope. Um, yeah. And that's just something that I think I've held on to this idea of like holding on to hope from job to job to job since then. And I think it's beyond work. It's just like a different way to think about life. The other thing I wanted to say is just the power of telling stories. So we've been through some things, the three of us on this podcast, and we joked about it at the beginning, laughing about it, but there's a couple of stories that we've told over and over and over again, some somber, some funny, somewhere in the mix. And I think about those pivotal moments in your life, like you do need to tell them a lot of times. That's healing. That's healthy. That's a good way to process. And so I think I like that you said, at the very beginning, Jackie Rowe, like we need to, to pause as a community. And I think we don't need to be scared of stories. Sometimes I think, you know, a month from now, people will be uncomfortable if we talk about it. People will get, they get, we, we don't do a great job as a culture of grieving and of processing, but if we can hold one another's stories, not just the day after, right? Like today, our staff took a moment to pause and just like process together. And it was really great. It was a great moment together. But we talked about how are we going to support each other a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, because stuff is going to keep happening to us, among us, with us. And so how do we keep telling stories, holding space, holding on to hope for each other? Like how do we keep that spirit alive? Um, And I think it takes work and it takes being able to like wave a <laughs> wave the white flag and say like I don't have it today guys like I don't have it and then having your people that can hold you up on those days that almost that's, oh that's so good Becca I love that I'm sorry JD I cut you off well I just almost burst into uncontrollable laughter even when <laughs> Becca said we had to be able to tell stories together because there have been so many moments that we that we have experienced where something just unimaginable is happening outside. And then the next day we'll be reflecting on it. And just a detail that might have seemed comical, not in that moment, but the next morning as we're retelling it, there might be a detail of that story that we have forgotten about that all of us can start laughing about. And so even just to bring that up, I bring that up to give you permission that like sometimes like we don't have to, like when we have people who know us and, and, and we are, you know, in a community where we are regularly interacting and people know us and we know them, like it is okay for us to 
laugh about things and to share them. And, it, and that is, at least for me, extremely healing. And if you are a person who is, who is not a laugher in those moments, please let at least Jackie and I know, but, but let other people know so that you can't do that. But I think that that, that idea of us, us processing through it, and it doesn't have to be a clinical, like cold mechanical processing of that there's, we are such complicated people. And so if there are moments we need to laugh about within that, that is what life is, right? Like there, there are, um, there are no, you know, singular uncomplicated events that happen, um, to us as human beings. And so, um, all that said, I think, you know, where, where I walk away today thinking for the future is that one, everything matters. Like every interaction matters. Becca mentioned having, um, students that she worked with. Jackie, you mentioned, you know, being able to point out air quotes, that student kind of as they're coming through um, elementary school. I, I texted y'all maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, that the student I spent more time with than anybody else um, in the elementary school that I, I worked at, like is in jail now and, and for a very, very long time in the future for something that that he did. And, and it's like, I, I was a super engaged, like, over-engaged even like in this kid's life, like doing everything I possibly could. And it's a reminder that we, we don't fix people, right? We do our, our job to be able to like interject hope and to teach and to bring alongside and all that. But we also um, know that if, if everybody does their part, we're good. And so if we can do our part and then we can fight for the right things to be done in systems and the right things to be done in homes and, you know, it means that you're an involved voter. It means that you advocate for what your community needs specifically. It means that you are an attentive neighbor. And um, rather than rushing to judgment, rushing to to be able to support families in your street that might be struggling rather than, you know, restricting yourself from them. So all, all those things, uh, all, all of the above. Um, and it also means asking for help when we need it. When there's something that we can't get past and we're not sure why, Possibly there is something in our DNA that has been passed down to us that we don't understand. And adoptive parents, I think we need to all, like adoptive and foster parents need to, we need to zero in on this particular facet because there might be behaviors and things we're seeing that we don't understand at home because there are different histories involved. And we need to be willing to ask the right questions, to ask for help from those that are around us who might be able to help us and to hold those babies close in that unknown and let them know that there is one constant that does transcend um, the known and unknown. And that's just, if we're there for each other, that we love each other, like that does transcend um, our histories. And so. Um, I love that JD. I love that. And I, and I really love what Becca said about the importance of stories. I think that a lot of trauma lives in, in the, in silence. And mm-hmm. so when you encourage people to share their story, I'll tell you generationally, my my grandparents, great grandparents did not share their stories. They're, they endured a lot of, you know, oppression, racism, sexism, genderism, all the isms. Um, but those stories didn't get passed on, but their reaction to those stories did get passed down. So, you know, the the fear, the uh, second class history, the the thing, the it, the things that they uh, got as a result of the trauma got passed on to us, and we didn't even know the story behind it. So I love yeah. the notion of making time to hear stories, to encourage people to share stories. Those babies got stories. Those mm-hmm. that was one of my favorite things about being in an elementary school is that kids love to tell you things yeah. about their life. <laughs> 
if they know you're interested and you're going to listen. And I, and I mean, genuinely listen, yeah. not, you know, a pacifying listening, but an active listen, they'll tell stories and there's healing in that Becca. So that was so well said. So true. Keep hope I, alive. Keep hope yeah. alive. Keep it alive. Keep hope alive. You may not be able to save all the starfish, but that one that you pick up and throw back, that's the hope you need to get up for the next day. Yep. Yep. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was great to see you. I love you guys. We got to get together in person. I know. We need to. We need to. We'll do it soon. Well, hopefully that was um, as informative and, and helpful and practical for you as it was uh, for us when we recorded it. Miss um, Jackie is just a treasure trove of information and, um, and just an incredible thinker. And we're, and we're just really glad um, to have been able to have her on. And so um, for everybody here at Empowered to Connect, for Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, for Tad Jewett, who created the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast, and everybody here at ETC, That's it for us, and we'll see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.